Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Before my parents divorced, they'd hash out arguments through carefully selected songs. They argued a lot. So I grew up listening to plenty of good music. Hearing my parents communicate through song is probably why I've always loved making mixtapes. I learned very early that sometimes you have to let someone else with a better voice and a great band get your message across. When my mom was really irritated with my father, she'd sometimes let Aretha Franklin say it all, like in her 1967 hit, Do Right Woman, Do Right Man. If you want a do-right, all-day woman, you've got to be a do-right, all-night man. Okay, mama. And when my father had something to say, he'd usually turn to Rick James, particularly his 1983 single, Cold-Blooded. I would flip through my parents' records, looking at the artists they let speak for them. My mother preferred soul singers to speak her heart, and my father chose funk and rock artists to underline his thoughts. One day, I stood in front of the television and found the artist who spoke to me. This was 1983, and MTV, only two years old at the time, was taking over the nation. And there, standing on an old-school foundation of jazz and rock, reaching into the future with synthesizers, creating a blend of music no one had ever heard before and no one could ever imitate, no matter how hard they tried, was Prince in the video for I Want to Be Your Lover. He filled the big-body box of our television, and I froze in place. the dare on the opening sally of the drums, the rhythmic prodding of the guitar. Who was that? He kept his head tilted, avoiding the camera until suddenly he was at the microphone. A single hoop earring in his right ear and his leopard print shirt dipped into a low V. His hair was blowing all around as he moved, defiant yet demanding. And he had the biggest, prettiest eyes I'd ever seen on a man. And at six years old, I imprinted on him. Mama had Aretha, my father had Rick James, and I had Prince Rogers Nelson, his royal badness, the purple one, legend. This is The Prince Mixtape, and I'm your host, Nicole Perkins.
I've hosted a couple of other podcasts about pop culture, desire, and finding pleasure in life. And I've been a Prince fan almost as long as I've been alive. I love him so much. I named my memoir, Sometimes I Trip on How Happy We Could Be, after one of my favorite lines from my most favorite Prince song of all time, If I Was Your Girlfriend. That's how much his work means to me, as a person and as an artist. Prince is an artist unlike anyone else. He wanted to navigate his life and career on his own terms, and he paved the way for all of us to get in touch with who we really are. If Prince taught us nothing else, he taught us to approach life with passion. Purple passion. For the first season of this podcast, host Amina Tuso focused on Diana, Princess of Wales, and now we'll highlight a different type of royalty. Prince. On each episode of the Prince Mixtape, we'll meet people who knew Prince, worked with him, or simply loved him from afar. And we'll dig deep into key moments of his life, like when his sexually liberated lyrics gave birth to the parental advisory sticker, when he fought to own his masters, and when he rocked that infamous, delicious booty cutout pantsuit. Just like a treasured mixtape from your favorite crush, this show is a reflection of all the care and passion, the big moments and small, that made up a life. Prince's life. Let's start at the beginning. Now, before that day I first saw Prince, I'd heard men sing in falsetto before. Any good soul group has a falsetto man. The Four Tops, The Temptations, Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, The Stylistics. Even Al Green and Marvin Gaye knew how to hit the right note to send women reaching for a handkerchief to wipe their brow. Prince took the falsetto and he made it something more than a plea for forgiveness. He made it erotic. Those soul singers of the 1950s and 60s were what my mom would listen to when she got nostalgic about her childhood. Prince was born in 1958, four years after my parents, so I'm sure they listened to much of the same music. But Prince's own parents had musical backgrounds that directly contributed to how he shaped his sound. Prince's dad, John L. Nelson, was a jazz pianist. Here's a song he wrote called Don't Play With Love. Isn't that lovely? It sounds like it could find a home in the moody stylings of the Under the Cherry Moon soundtrack. Born and raised in Louisiana, John Nelson moved to Minneapolis, where he gave himself the stage name Prince Rogers. His band was the Prince Rogers Trio. He eventually met Maddie Della Shaw, a jazz singer who became the vocalist of the band. Nearly a year after they got married, they had a son. What is your name at birth? My name at birth was Prince Rogers Nelson. John named Prince after his stage name because, in his own words, I wanted him to do everything I wanted to do. Prince's parents were married for 11 years and had two children together, but their marriage more closely resembled the chaos of jazz rather than the melody. Violence and jealousies permeated the relationship. Maddie and John both craved attention and excitement. 
They always needed to be the best dressed when they went out, according to Prince in his posthumous memoir, The Beautiful Ones. One night, tempers flared between John and Maddie. She rushed into Prince's room and held him between herself and her husband, using her child as a shield. There's some kind of tragic poetry there, a wife holding her husband's dreams between them to save herself. The volatile nature of Prince's home matched the turmoil in Minneapolis as the city suffered the growing pains associated with the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s. During the summer of 1967, race riots lit up the country, including in Minneapolis. In the middle of this unrest was a community center called The Way, where the nine-year-old Prince made his home away from home. The Way was a place for the local Black children to hang out after school or during a summer when the world was on fire. It was around the time that Prince's parents divorced when he began shuffling between the homes of family and friends. According to his memoir, he found escape in after-school programs where he'd discover instruments left haphazardly around the room. He'd pick each one up like the guitar or bass, testing it to see if he liked it learning how to play whatever tickled his fancy. In 1970, when Prince was 12 years old, Minneapolis began busing Black students into white neighborhoods to desegregate schools. It was an experience that affected him deeply. He'd later say it helped him see the harsh realities of racial injustice, but it also led him to one of the greatest musical partnerships of his life with Andre Simone, bassist and music producer who helped launch the Minneapolis Sound. In the early 70s, Prince and Andre Simone were both new kids in their junior high school. The two connected via their love of music and formed a band called Grand Central. By the time Prince was in high school, their band was well-known around Minneapolis. They played cover songs at whatever event they could book in Black and white neighborhoods. Even this early in his career, Prince knew how to cross lines. Then Grand Central changed its band name to Champagne and decided to record a demo. It was then that Prince met someone who would help change his life forever. A young white expat from the UK named Chris Moon. I started my recording studio at about age 17. And one of the things that I realized was musically, I was out of place. I really responded to R&B music, Black music, anything that had a good beat to it. It just connected with me stronger than rock did. When I was in England, the Beatles came out. I didn't like the Beatles, and I was very unpopular because I didn't like the Beatles. Word got around Black artist circles in Minneapolis that Chris Moon's studio was a welcoming place for music that didn't fit into the rock or country genres. Although he worked at an ad agency during the day, helping create brand campaigns and jingles, at night, he worked in his studio looking to find breakout R&B artists. Enter the band now called Champagne, formerly known as Grand Central, that Prince and Andre Simone started together. They were being managed by one of the kids' mothers, and she called up and she booked some time at my studio. I thought, oh my God, this is my dreams have come true. Not only am I getting to record and produce some music that I naturally like, but it's also a paid gig. 
So Champagne came into the studio to put together a uh, three-song demo tape over the course of a week. And towards the end of the uh, week-long session, the band went across the street for ice cream, and I'm sitting in my control room eating my sandwich, and I look out in the studio, and one of the artists is still with me. He's out there playing bass guitar. I didn't think too much of it, and I kept eating a bit more food. And then I looked up, and there he was playing bass, drums, piano, guitar. As Chris watches Prince in the studio, he gets an idea. Maybe this little shy kid with a huge afro can help him record some of his own music. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I had learned that trying to get a band to a recording studio is is a incredibly complicated process because the drummer would have a flat tire, the guitarist would be having a fight with his girlfriend, the keyboard player would be sick, the bass player would be hung over. Trying to get all those people to show up on the same day at the same time, I had learned was, was really a challenge. So I was sitting here thinking about this problem. I looked back into the studio and then I saw the same artist jumped over to the drums. And then I started paying attention to him, and and then he went over and and played another instrument, and I went, oh my goodness, that's the solution to my problem. Here's an artist that can play all the instruments. So I walked up to him after the session, and I said, hey, I was watching you. I see you play all the instruments, and and you're really good. And he says, yeah, thanks. I said, look, I said, "I'd, I'd be interested in trying to put a package together around you and promote you and I want to write some songs, so we'll do my songs, and I'll package up and see if I can make you famous. And he looked at me and went, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. Well, that sounds just like Prince. A man of few words, but with a clear vision. So I reached into my pocket. I handed in the keys to my recording studio, which was everything I owned in life, and (laughs) he walked out the door. We've all come to know Prince as a bold and fearless entertainer, the man who launched a thousand parental advisory stickers. But that's not the version of Prince that Chris Moon met in his Minneapolis studio in 1976. Prince was almost invisible. I mean, he had a massive afro, but, you know, he was a short kind of guy and looked down most of the time, didn't say much, had a very, very quiet personality, and there was a lot of other strong personalities around. Morris Day and Andre Simone were much more outspoken, and and so they tended to suck the air out of the room, and uh, Prince kind of went unnoticed. So when Prince first showed up at the studio, he was super shy, super quiet, just very, very introverted. Of course, that changed over the course of the year, but it didn't start out that way. Over time, Prince started to open up as he and Chris workshop songs together. He'd show up and 
We'd sit on a stool two feet across from each other. And he typically had a guitar in his hand. And we would sing in falsetto voices to each other. And we just sing to each other. And we wrote songs. And we spent a year sitting across from one another, singing our songs, working up our melodies and writing songs together. So, you know, pretty cool to have Prince come over to your house and sing for a whole year and write songs with you. So that's, as, that's about as good as it gets in, in the world of music. So obviously when he came to the studio at 16, he didn't know how to record or produce or anything. So I taught him how to lay tracks down and record it and get the levels properly and, and how to mix and balance things and taught him how to record and produce. Prince was learning new skills in the studio that would shape the rest of his music career. But his old shyness was never far behind. We got three songs all put together and multi-tracked and all the instruments done. It's time to do some vocals. So I brought Prince in and we queued up the first song and he's in the studio, I'm in the control room and I start playing the tape and uh, I see his lips moving through the glass, but I've got the microphone turned on, but the meters aren't moving and I can't hear anything. So I crank up the volume all the way and he's still singing but I can't hear anything. So I'm figuring I got a bad microphone cord. So I run out in the studio, replace the cord, come back in, rewind, start again. Once again, his lips are moving, but no sign, no movement on the meters. I'm thinking, oh, must have a bad microphone. Go out, change the microphone, come back, rewind, do it all again, same problem. So I keep the tape playing, and while it's playing, I walk into the studio, and I hear him singing, he's singing like, you could hardly, hardly hear. He's singing quieter than a mouse. I said, Prince, you got to sing louder, man. I can't, I can't, you're singing so quiet, I can't even record it. We spent hours and hours trying to get his voice on tape, and nothing was working. Chris had to get creative and develop some unconventional methods to draw Prince out. And now here I am a month into this project and I'm finding out my singer can't sing and I'm going, I got to find a solution for this. I got too much time invested in it. And so I try everything I can think of and nothing works. And finally, I slept in my studio in the basement. I went down to my basement and pulled the pillows off my bed and the blankets off my bed and I came up to the studio and I made a bed. <laughs> It sounds bizarre now, but I made a bed in the middle of the recording studio. I said, come over here, Prince, lay down. Put your head on the pillow. I covered him up. I turned off all the lights. I took the microphone, put it right next to him, got next to him. I said, "Just let's just hum together. And I played the track. And I just, just, just hum along with me. And then I got him humming a little bit. And then I said, all right, now let's just, you know, let's just try singing a little bit. It doesn't have to be loud, but let's just try. Just sing along with me. And we, we sang together. And eventually, after about an hour of this, I coaxed a voice out of him that I could record. And that was the beginning of getting Prince singing in the studio. You know, it makes perfect sense that Prince would need his first studio to be converted into a boudoir. That visual fits our idea of him, doesn't it? But you know what doesn't? Prince handling something as mundane as a cleaning appliance. One day he walked into the studio 
And I was standing there with a vacuum cleaner hose in my hand. And he said, are you cleaning the studio? He says, I've never seen you vacuum the studio. And I said, no, I'm not. He says, well, I'm not going to do it. I said, no, I'm not asking you to do it. He says, well, why have you got the vacuum cleaner hose? I said, well, we're going to do something a little different today. Come over here. And I said, we're going to sing through the vacuum cleaner hose. And I put one end of the hose in my mouth. I took the other and swang it above my head. And we'll go, wow, 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 And we'll get this swirling effect. And I said, I got this idea after listening to a Leslie speaker on an organ, and I want to try doing vocals singing through a vacuum cleaner hose. So, you know, me pulling up uh, bed materials from the studio was not the weirdest thing he'd seen me do. <laughs> Now, did that vacuum cleaner sound seem familiar to you? I'll go, wow, 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 wow. I can hear it in the title song from the album 1999. But I hear it most clearly in When Doves Cry from the hit album Purple Rain. Going into the studio with Chris Moon, Prince wanted to make music that was entirely his own, but he was inspired by James Brown, the godfather of soul, and another legendary performer from nearby Indiana. I said, "Who, who's our target out there that we want to do better than that? And Prince immediately answered, Michael Jackson. He says, I want to be bigger and better than Michael Jackson. I said, well, that's, that's a great goal. That's a great goal because, you know, that's as big as you can get. Prince was always focused on trying to dethrone uh, Michael Jackson as the king of pop. By this point, Michael Jackson had been in the music industry for more than 10 years. So Prince would need something powerful to get audiences' attention. Chris and Prince got to work. In a year, they wrote over a dozen songs, including one that would become a single from Prince's 1978 debut album. The song was a scandalous ode to kissing. Or was it? The first thing I did was realize that I needed a breakout song for him. I needed a song that would launch him and a song that would have, you know, real marketing power built behind it. And so I decided that maybe the, the best way of doing this was using sexual double entendre, where you had things that had double meanings. That way, because he was young, you know, if he got in a pickle with the uh, media or something, he could always pull out a nice, safe explanation. So I wrote this song, Soft and Wet, with the goal, with the specific purpose of breaking him out. And with it being his first hit song, and Soft and Wet was written to be a kind of title that if you heard it would make you go, what's that song all about? And it was something that was uh, kind of provocative, but on the other hand, was it? And I remember ultimately my mother, a very proper English woman, heard the song on the radio and she came up to me and she goes, son, I heard your song Soft and Wet. I like the song, but what's it about? And Fortunately, I had my plan B in place, and I looked at my mother and said, Mom, it's about a kiss. (laughs) So when we sat down to write that song, one of the things that Prince did, he said, let's put a break in this song to give it a dramatic pause. And I said, oh, I like that idea, because you don't hear that much. Uh, Soft and wet, uh, uh, uh. 
gave it a really interesting punctuation. That was all, all Prince. From the moment we got that song, even in its rough stage, it just felt really infectious. It felt really uh, like what I call back there a brain worm. It kind of got into your head and you couldn't help singing soft and wet. And then you're going, wait a minute, what am I singing? <laughs> With songs like Soft and Wet, Prince helped define what would become known as the Minneapolis sound. This funk pop music took over the 1980s as Prince launched acts like The Time and Vanity Six. Former musicians from the time, like Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, spread the Minneapolis sound by producing Janet Jackson, Sherelle, the SOS Band, and more. I wonder how Prince felt knowing Janet Jackson, the baby sister of the man who was the biggest rival in his mind, owed much of her success to a sound he helped create. Bet it made his doves cool something pretty. The Minneapolis sound was really kind of a funky beat, a good deep bass and an Oberheim synthesizer with an arpeggiator being used on it. And if you put those three together, you kind of had a Minneapolis sound. But at the time, it was very funky and raw and traditionally Oberheim synthesizer driven. Uh, so it had kind of a thick chordal structure with a bouncy kind of uh, deep bass where it would happen to move the bottom along. It moves my bottom along for sure. It may have taken him a while to warm up, but inside the studio, Prince was coming alive. With a turbulent home life and bullying at school, the studio was his sanctuary, a place he could be vulnerable. Yet those darker outside forces were trying to invade and poison his safe space. I don't talk about this much because it's a hot potato, but back when I was working with Prince, I was getting death threats. Oh, really? I did not know that. No, well, it's because it's not the sort of thing that normally you want to put out there. And I was getting regular death threats, messages left in my mailbox and slipped under my door. And there were real issues that came to me because I was working with black artists. I, I didn't understand it when I came to Minneapolis that there was this kind of racial tension amongst the people living there. So when I started getting death threats, it was a real shock to me that there were people that were threatening my lives because I was making music. I mean, wow. So it was just because you were white working with Black artists? It was it was just racism? Yes, yes. The threats would say, you know, you keep working with N-word People, you know, we're going to kill you. Oh, my goodness. So there was, there was no doubt about what was going on. There were times where I was living in fear of my life. I would really lock up the studio tight at, at night each night because I slept there by myself. You know, I, I had security concerns for my, for my welfare. Did Prince know about these death threats? No. I haven't told anyone for decades and decades because I didn't see that as being a very productive conversation. But the evidence was in the fact that all the Black artists I was working with, and I was working with a lot of them, they couldn't find jobs. No one would hire them. They wouldn't hire them because, you know, we don't want that kind of music in our nightclub or in our bar. So 
what I came to learn to understand is I was in this place that had this huge pent-up, built-up musical expression that had virtually no outlet, which on one level was really exciting, but on the other level was seriously frustrating that a group of great, capable artists were getting bottlenecked, not because of their talent, but because of their skin color. And did Prince's success help change the attitudes about race and musicians and help kind of change the atmosphere in Minneapolis? My sense is it did. Uh, It went from a town where, you know, what made Minneapolis great was Bob Dylan. Now what made Minneapolis great was Prince. Prince with the Minneapolis sound, that wasn't a white sound, that was a black sound. So Prince, I think, made Minneapolis known for black music. Fabulous. Great. I mean, when you think of great black music, Minneapolis is one of the places you think of because of Prince. So I think it rebranded the town, rebranded the city. Attitudes changed. He put Minneapolis on the map. I'm glad Chris never told him about those death threats, but I don't think anything or anyone could have stopped Prince from becoming Prince. Destiny had led Prince to Chris's studio, and the two finally had a collection of songs recorded. So now it was time to think about how to package it all. What I realized was I had a talented guy, but just because you have talent, that won't get you fame. You know, you've got to have a whole package put, put around you. You've got to have an identity, an image. You know, you've got to have the right songs. And so I started putting together this marketing package for Prince, and it all began with his name. You know, I said, look, fortunately, you've got the world's greatest name. It's a fabulous name. It's a pop star name, if ever there's been one. Let's just drop everything else and just call you Prince. Prince looked at me, he said, no. I said, what do you mean, no? He said, I won't use that name. What's the perfect name? Why won't you use the name? That I don't like the name. I said, well, why won't you like the name? It's a great name. He says, because, you know, in school, in high school, uh, they would tease me and call me Princess. He says, I hate that name. I said, oh, my goodness. I said, here we are. We got a God-given gift of all possible great names. And you don't want to use it. I said, so what name do you want to be called? He says, well, I know what name I want to go by. And there's no debate about it. And I said, okay, what name do you want to use? What did he say? (laughs) Are you ready for this? (laughs) I'm listening. He says, I want to be called Mr. Nelson. Oh. (laughs) I said, come on, man. You're not. Are you serious? He says, yes, I want to be Mr. Nelson. I said, no, that's not going to work. He said, what do you mean it's not going to? I said, firstly, you know, music is mainly for young people. Young people are not calling anybody Mr. And as far as Nelson goes, there's already a Mr. Nelson. Have you ever heard of a guy called Willie? And so Prince and I had a, the only fight, the only argument he and I ever had was over his name. And it lasted three months. And for three months, I said, we're going to call you Prince. And for three months, he says, I want to be called Mr. Nelson. Now, it may be hard to imagine calling Prince Mr. Nelson, but it actually makes complete sense, especially when you think about the civil rights battles he witnessed throughout his childhood and the stories his parents probably told. 
Black people were often denied honorifics like Mr. or Mrs., Sir or Ma'am, and were addressed informally by their first names, if not simply boy or girl. And then you add in the bullying Prince received in school because of his height and slight build. He wanted to be addressed with respect. In his memoir, The Beautiful Ones, he mentions that his teachers, unwilling to take his name seriously, sometimes refused to call him Prince altogether and addressed him by his nickname, Skipper. And he probably also wanted to distance himself from the family pressure to fulfill his father's unrealized dreams of making it big as a musician. After all, his father used Prince Rogers as his own stage name. Maybe just like Prince wanted to create his own unique sound, he wanted to have his own stage name, separate from his dad. As comfortable as he was making music with Chris, perhaps he felt too vulnerable to share all of that with him, a white guy from England. And finally, after three months, they said, look, I don't mean to be difficult, but I won't go forward any longer unless we agree on Prince. In good faith, I can't put together a package around an artist named Mr. Nelson. I just don't think it'll ever work. And so Prince said to me, so he said, so what are you saying? It's your way or the highway? I said, look, I don't want to be a jerk about this, but yes. Well, as we all know, Mr. Nelson did not happen. Chris won that battle. So now we have a name, a press kit, and a demo album. Chris sent it around, but no one would bite. Prince's sound was too hard to place. Was it rock? Was it R&B? They couldn't land a deal, let alone much interest. But Prince's desire for fame was burning through him, and he was determined to make it happen. And at one point, Prince wanted you to manage him, but you declined. Why did you decline? I'm a music producer, music writer. I love making music. That's what I'm into. I said, look, I'm not going to be your manager, but I will find you a good manager. And that's when I went off and found Owen Husney for him. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. After hiring Owen Husney and signing a record deal with Warner Brothers, Prince went on to release the album For You in 1978, and he started to get national attention. It soon became clear that you either felt Prince's music right away or you needed to warm up to it. A lot of the uh, new wave acts have definitely brought a lot of attention to um, we have a video R&B. clip of a, that you brought along talking about those, which were right. along a group called Prince. Now, is that right. a new way of now, rock and that's roll? a guy, one guy oh, called a, Prince, oh, I a dog person dog. who is definitely the look of 1981 and the best way 
This is Lee Leonard, host of CNN's People Tonight, and his guest, music editor Cookie Emerson, back in January 1981. Well, if you cut up a lot of people and put them all together, you'd have old Prince there, right? And he looks a little like Mick Jagger. He looks a little Hispanic. He looks a little black. He's got a little punk, a little disco. He's definitely different. And a little bit of an old stripper I used to love. He's got the storm there. He's got her stockings on. He's androgynous. He's a little... He's wonderful. He's wonderful. Wow. The girls that get it, get it. I loved how confused Lee is and how confident Cookie is in Prince's future as an artist. And it's not lost on me that in this clip, Lee, a white man, tries his best to break down all the pieces of who Prince might be. And Cookie, a black woman, does not care. She just loves the music and the vibe, which is ultimately what Prince was going for. Is he going to be a big star? Definitely. Definitely, no question about it. During the Reagan years? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. That's going to be wonderful. Cookie, thank you for being with us again tonight, darling. We'll take a short break while I absorb all of that. And that was just the beginning. Prince would go on to make 39 studio albums plus five live albums and sell over 100 million records. He headlined the Super Bowl 41 halftime show to an audience of roughly 140 million. For the silver screen, he would produce the celebrated soundtrack to the 1989 summer blockbuster, Batman. And of course, star in his own smash hit movie, the classic Purple Rain. He was a star. So as you watched Prince's career grow and become this incredible legacy, would you still see elements of who he was as a 16-year-old? I remember going to see Purple Rain, and I'm sitting in the theater amongst all these other people, just like another moviegoer, and I'm watching Prince on stage, and I am not seeing the same Prince as everybody else in the audience. I mean, I really watched him metamorphosize in the studio and come into manhood and the confidence that he needed to go forward in his career. So when I watched that movie, I saw the young 16-year-old Prince that walked in my studio. Everyone else saw the 18-year-old that walked out. Prince and Chris Moon never collaborated on music again after the release of his debut album. But Prince had subtle ways of winking back at his early collaborator and giving him a nod. Prince called me several years after Purple Rain came out. Hadn't spoken to him for years and years and years. He just calls me out of the blue. He said, hi, Chris. I said, Prince? He said, yeah. I said, hey, how are you? How great to hear from you. He says, I'm just calling to tell you. I made a movie about you. It's called Under the Cherry Moon. Under the Cherry Moon, released in 1986, was Prince's directorial debut. It was about a smooth gigolo named Christopher Tracy, played by Prince himself, who had his eyes set on the rich daughter of a shipping magnate. The film was shot in black and white in order to make the 1930s-esque French Riviera setting come alive. It was a critical flop, but it gave the world one of the best albums of all time. Cherry Moon, Sea Moon, get it? And the movie starts out, it says, Chris Vernon cares about two things, girls and money. Well, he left out music. <laughs> and I can't help but think that, you know, while I was never paid for one nickel of the studio time I gave him, and he never said thank you, and I never even got an autographed album, 
the inference was he had made the movie for me as a thank you. So (laughs) that's a pretty nice thank you. Another little thank you came in the liner notes of a hit bangle song, which Prince wrote. What was the pen name on Manic Monday? Now who's asking who questions? (laughs) Um, Christopher. (laughs) His pen name was Christopher. He does the movie Under the Cherry Moon. And if you walk into Paisley, there's moons everywhere. Yeah, I did a tour of Paisley. I felt like I was home. (laughs) There were so many crescent moons everywhere. And a crescent moon is, even today, I wear one around my neck. That's always been my symbol. So we've always had a connection. It's just come out in all kinds of different ways. You can hear how gratified Chris is to be on the receiving end of these small tributes from Prince and how proud he is of the legacy he helped create. But he also struggles with feelings of regret. He called me a year after he got his Warner Brothers deal. I said, how is it being famous? You got your first hit song. You're a big star with Warner Brothers. How is it being famous? And I never forget. His little voice at the other end say, it's really lonely. He said, you know, I never thought it would be this lonely. He said, everybody around me wants something from me, and I just don't know who to trust anymore. He says, you're the only person that ever gave me anything and never asked me for anything in, in return. But everybody else wants something from me. And in that moment... It made me question whether helping him to achieve that kind of fame ultimately did him well, did him good. It makes me sad to think of Prince as lonely, but I understand it. As a child, I thought I was drawn to him because I saw a beautiful, strange creature dancing in my family's television. I didn't have the language to explain the connection then, but I do now. I know what it's like to grow up in an abusive household. I, too, am an introvert who enjoys silence and strong boundaries, and not many people know how to deal with that. In the last several years, my career has taken off beyond my wildest dreams, but I've been single and living alone during a pandemic, and it can be very lonesome not having someone solid to share your successes with. It also hurts to think of Prince as lonely because on April 21st, 2016, when emergency responders arrived at his home, Paisley Park, they found him at least six hours too late. Prince died alone. And I just hate the thought of that. I hope he knew that he was loved. I always had one question to ask him. I never got to ask it. Are you glad you were famous? Because I've often had the thought that, you know, if I hadn't helped him and and if he hadn't made it and if he'd had a little average wife with a little average picket fence and a little average house with a little average dog with a little average job, is it possible he might have not been so lonely and had a happier life? Because I think uh, fame at that young an age, it's a great burden. That, um, I'm sorry, I'm just getting a little emotional thinking about an alternative universe, Prince, and what that would have been like. 
Do you think that's part of the reason that he anchored himself in Minneapolis um, in order to have some familiarity and to have something that felt like home to him? Why, why do you think Minneapolis was so important to him that he that was his home until the end? Well, Prince was a lonely person. He was lonely before I met him. His home life had been difficult, and he had left home at an early age. You know, he had been alone much of his life. You know, he came into the studio kind of lonely. I'd like to think that we really formed a nice relationship because, you know, we spent a lot of really fun time together and lots of jokes and laughing. But I think he just longed for some sense of belonging. And I think... uh, he probably went out to L.A. and thought, I mean, out here there's nothing I connect with. At least in Minneapolis, there are places I've been to. There's something familiar here. And, and I think some sense of belonging was, was part of what he really wanted and needed. What I wouldn't give to know there's another timeline out there where Prince is mowing his lawn, singing a little ditty to himself as his wife brings him a glass of lemonade. Would he buy her a purple dress and take her dancing? I don't know. Prince never really had the kind of normalcy expected of us. The loving parents with a secure childhood or the reliable career that leads to the white picket fence and the loving family of your own. But in Minneapolis... Prince had a home, a history. He could ride his bike around the neighborhood like anyone else and finally feel safe. In Minneapolis, he could step away from the burdens and expectations of fame and be himself. So we don't think of L.A., Nashville, all these hotspot New York places. Minneapolis gets it done, too. Huh? Uh, Minneapolis always been a bomb. You don't, you, yeah. you don't have to go outside of that. Next week on The Prince Mixtape, a song about a wayward woman named Nikki gets everybody hot and bothered. The Prince Mixtape is produced by CNN Audio and Pineapple Street Studios. It's hosted by me, Nicole Perkins. Our producers are Emmanuel Hapsis, Beandria July, and Natalie Brennan. Our managing producer is Aaron Kelly. Our editor is Darby Maloney. Mix and original music by Hannes Brown. Our head of sound and engineering is Raj Makija. And our assistant engineers are Sharon Bardalis and Jade Brooks. At CNN, our senior producer is Felicia Patinkin, and our executive producer is Abby Fintress Swanson. Nicole Pesaru and James Andres designed our artwork. Executive producers for Pineapple Street Studios are Gabrielle Lewis, Barry Finkel, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Max Linsky. Special thanks to Noah Camuso, Hannah Park, Katie Hinman, Tamika Balance-Kalosny, Sonia Tun, Chip Grabo, Anissa Gray, Frank Lomonti, Steph Garrett, Graham Duda, Andrea White, Lindsay Abrams, Robert Mathers, Lisa Namoro, Kira Posey, and John Dianora. <laughs>